Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Climate change, global conflicts, and upcoming election, it's understandable why so many people feel like we're on the brink of disaster. Enter What Could Go Right. It's hosted by me, Emma Varvalukas, and Progress Network founder Zachary Carabao. We sit down with expert guests and discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair. Instead, we look back at how far we've come and look forward at what we'll take to achieve an even brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join us every Wednesday on What Could Go Right. Okay, cool. Y'all ready? Welcome to The Amendment, a weekly conversation about gender politics and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. I'm your host, Erin Haynes. So when it comes to democracy, we've got a lot of unfinished business. There's still way too many people who are unseen and unheard in our politics. And we want to bring them into the conversation. We want to bring them into the business of politics, especially during this pivotal election year. That's why we're doing the amendment. This podcast is about expanding who gets to be seen and heard in this country. We're going to do that by bringing in people who might be cultural figures. They might be elected leaders. They might be an all-star reporter. But all with the goal of helping us get to a better understanding of why our democracy remains unfinished and what we can do about it. This week, we're talking to Tressie McMillan-Cottom. Tressie is an award-winning writer, sociologist. She's a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's also an amazing cultural critic. Uh, She covers technology and culture, media, higher education, inequality, social issues. Really, she just has the range, you guys. We can talk about anything from Dolly Parton to democracy. We're talking to Tressie today because she is my sister Southerner, and we both believe that the South is the epicenter of American politics. So as we're kicking off the 2024 election, I want to talk to her about what we can learn from paying attention to our part of the country, what the South means for journalists, politicians, elections, what it means for Black women in politics, and then, of course, we've got to get into the power of TikTok. So a lot to unpack here. Let's get started. Tressie, thank you for joining us on The Amendment. Thank you for having me, Erin. First of all, how much do I love seeing you? I love it a lot. And how much do I love the framing of the show? Love it a lot. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Listen, uh, yes, the timing could not be better and the topic could not be better because, look, one of the beautiful things that we do have in common is being Black women from the South. That's right. And we're just really no strangers to the way that people like to hate on the South. So I want to start by kind of giving the South some love and asking you, Tell me one of your favorite things about the region of the country that we come from. Oh, goodness. One of my favorite things about the South is— I know. Pick one. I know it's hard. As I was saying, one, uh, I love being from the South, which I think is surprising, especially in the circles that we now find ourselves in, Erin. But, you know, there's this way that you can move through life where you encounter 
liberal circles, uh, by and large, are the ones that I am in, where this this sort of latent assumption that, you know, being from the South, oh, I hope y'all are all right. Oh, you're okay. You know, really worried about us, worried for us. And so I like being very upfront about the fact that I like being from the South. I choose to be here. Yeah. Um, You know, I really, I could be anywhere in the country, most places I think in the world. And I choose to be in the South because I enjoy the experience. So on a personal level, I like to say to people when they're confused about that, that I exist in the South. I am legible as a person in the South. And what that means for me in my daily life is that when I walk around, there are people who can see the fullness of me. Yeah. Right? They can see race and class and gender and sexuality and religion and all of those complexities, those sort of shades of gray that happens with um, multifaceted identities. And I'm just legible. And so being legible is much better than walking around like a ghost where people look through you and can't see the fullness of you or they only understand you in one context. And you know what? I have a lot of expertise in the South, in Southernness, and I don't want to give that up. I, I am culturally fluent in the ways of the South, and it's nice to be expert in a culture. And so <laughs> I like that, too. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, plus one to all of that. And for those of you uh, who are not uh, Southerners, you know, bless your heart is really uh, yes. what I have for for folks who who try to, to deride uh, the part of the country that, that we are from. And because, listen— I'm with you. Not only does it make us legible, I think it gives us really such a unique and and frankly clarifying lens with which to look at this country. Being from the South, I think, does inform the way that I approach journalism, the way that I think about our democracy. You know, I think so much of of what we understand about how this country works is is really in your face in that part of the country. But I I do wonder, you know, just kind of as, as much as we know about the importance of the region that that we come from, that we were raised in, that you are are now privileged to be back in. Why do you think that the South is still portrayed the way it is? How is our political journalism even contributing to what we get wrong about the South? And and why does that matter for our democracy? Yeah, you know, I want to shout out the fact that I do think that there are plenty, there are many people, I won't say plenty, because I don't know that there is such a thing as too many. Um, And I certainly wouldn't say it's like a critical mass or a majority of people who make the media about the South, especially in political journalism. But there are some real notable exceptions to that. And I'm always really proud when I see us out there in those spaces. One, because like you, I know what that means to do that work. And two, I think it's better than it has been historically. But that's not saying a lot, right? I mean, because it has, I think, been historically bad, meaning the national depiction of the South as a collection of characters that just play out this never-ending theater of the lost cause as if, you know, the South can be written off and that would leave anything redeemable or functional about the rest of this country. And we still sort of do that, like, narrative construction of the South, I think, in national media for a few reasons. I think there's a structural reason, which is it is very hard to be a journalist, a writer, a thinker, an academic, any of those things that produces narratives about a place, especially empirical stories about a place, you know, it really privileges wealthy people. Yeah. 
It is, you know, this is a job increasingly uh, true, by the way, as media continues to just be gutted, you know, by financial structure and attacked by uh, a reactionary political environment. It is very hard for people who do not come from privilege to do this work. And the South remains um, not just racially diverse, but class diverse. And so people who are more inclined to tell really complex stories about the South tend not to have the privilege to pursue these types of careers. Low pay, you have to move, you got to have family money, connections, institutional access, go to the right colleges, all of that stuff that we know goes into reproducing privilege in the field. And so it makes it just easy to write these really broad (laughs) characters about the South because there's nobody from the South in the room with you when you do it. Right. There's nobody to sort of roll their eyes and and say, bless your heart and to correct the record. Um, And then I think there's like this cultural thing, which I'm really intrigued by. There are like these people who write about the way this country romanticizes the South and the role that plays. People really like to take a vacation in their mind in the South. I think it makes them feel better in a way about where they do live. Like, no matter how bad, for example, the politics are or the weather is in, say, a Wisconsin, one of the things that people rely on is being able to say, well, at least it's not Mississippi. Yeah. You know, or no matter how uh, much conflict is happening in California, people really love to go, well, hey, at least we're not Georgia, you know. And so we become this sort of like escape valve for... Um, the other parts of the country to to, to uh, excuse the severity of their own like political crises and challenges. And it makes it easy to do that because the South is still just so, you know, deeply entwined with the way this country feels about Black people. We also can't get around that. I mean, the South has a high concentration of African-Americans, and it makes it really easy then to not just disenfranchise the South politically, which we do, but to sort of disenfranchise it culturally, to just sort of write it off because you don't value the people who live there. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, some of some of our biggest uh, capital T truths ab- about who we are as a country, uh, you know, can, can be told when we, when we tell the truth about what the South is and and so that is why it matters. That is why people who come from our part of the country, it's important for us to weigh in on, you know, kind of where our democracy is and and what that means. And obviously, the good news is headed into this election. Well, I guess good or bad, depending on your perspective, is that the South is really the epicenter of American politics yes, right now. We are, uh, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you've written about that. I continue to to beat that drum. I mean. You are somebody that follows the South and American politics so closely. We were both recently in Jackson, Mississippi, talking about the importance of the South and our national politics. I'd just really love for you to, to, to kind of talk to our listeners about your perspective on why the South is such a focal point in our politics right now, in our culture, and, and the specific factors that are really kind of contributing to the South's unique influence on American political dynamics right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, easy question. I know, right? <laughs> easy uh, and, and right after this, we will then solve the climate change problem. Easy things, Aaron. Thank you. You know, we can't get around the fact that the United States is part of what's happening, you know, across the globe, which is you've got these reactionary political movements happening around the world. But in the United States, that reactionary movement is drawing from the political fissures, the economic 
inequality and fissures in the history of the South. That's just the structure of like the political imaginary in the United States of America. It Meaning if you want to be a white reactionary in the United States, you have to go through the South, right? Those reactionary politics have to travel through the South. It has to make sense in the context of the South. And you have this treasure trove of these really powerful images and narratives to draw from. So if you want to be a Donald Trump, if you want to be a Christopher Rufo, if you want to be a Steve Bannon, right, you would go to the epicenter of this nation's racial identity crisis, and that remains the South. So it is really stunning to me when you see something like January 6th, and we now know so much about the demographics of the insurrectionists that participated in January 6th. And, you know, they were upper middle class white Americans, not disproportionately from the South, in fact. And yet when you look at the imagery from that that day, it was like all these Confederate flags and all of this lost cause iconography, right? You can see it even globally where you'll see something like a Confederate flag flying in Germany or, you know, these like massive disconnects between like the geography and the images that they use when they want to assert white racial identity politics. That's because in the South, it's still very much alive. The images still really work to mobilize people's emotions and feelings. And so the South, I think, is important right now culturally to national politics because national politics needs the South for its white reactionary campaign. And then the South is important because of, I think, some demographic reasons and changes. So all of the most sort of pressing national issues, we can talk about, you know, the quote unquote border crisis, which I think is really a crisis of climate change. We can talk about immigration. We can talk about climate change. Those are all issues where you can see the fault lines of power and social movement and change and the pressure that's putting on national politics and state governance really clearly in the South. So I think there's a reason why those ideas are really powerful in the South, right? Why you have such strong anti-immigration sentiment, for example, because what's happening economically within the South makes it a really powerful story to tell people that, you know, this is, your problems are because of immigrants. Your problems is because we won't defend the border, right? And so those stories become really powerful to mobilize. And listen, this is all about mobilizing a base, right? And it works extremely well to mobilize a base across the South because those stories seem so familiar to so many Southerners. So the nationalization of politics hasn't made the South less important. It has made the South more important because the things that are used to mobilize the reactionary right, and really mainstream Republicans too, are the narratives from Southern politics and Southern history. So in a weird way, the nationalization that's happened is a nationalization of the South. Everybody's a lot more Southern in national politics. They have inherited, whether they know it or not, all of our longstanding battles, you know, enemies, stories about um, superiority. And so the South is really important right now. I'm 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I mean, Tressie, what you're saying is so important. And even listening to you right now, it it, it really is so clear that, that um, you know, as we look at 2024, as we look at you know, kind of where our democracy is and where it is going, so much of that is about the myths and the realities of the South colliding in this moment with the myths and the realities that we tell ourselves about this country uh, right now. So I want to talk to you about the South Carolina of it all, uh, because South Carolina played this huge role in 2020 after President Biden won there. You know, that was his Lazarus moment. He's resurrected, and then he, you know, marches through the South on Super Tuesday and pretty much locks it up. Um South Carolina has often been seen as this barometer for candidate viability, electability, right, and connecting with diverse voter groups. Uh, but then when it comes to one group of diverse voters, black women, right, we've seen how we are often taken for granted. That is something that we're already seeing shaping up in, in 2024, you know, where we have a narrative that, that is attempting to maybe even blame black people, specifically black men, but also saying, you know, what are black women going to do as if we do not know exactly what black women are going to do, by the way, what they have always done in every election. But but why is that narrative persisting even in this year? What do we gain by, by really taking black women's perspectives, viewpoints, input and output seriously? Well, I think we always gain a better level of analysis. You know, I stake my whole career on the idea, the single idea, that if you assume that Black women are rational, you will become smarter. Like, that's literally just my whole thing. Not that we're always right, not that we aren't fallible, not that we don't have the same human impulses, but that we are driven by the same rationality, um, which is a way of saying that we are human. And that if you believe that, you will always be smarter. Your analysis will always be crisper. It will always be sharper. South Carolina primary is an example of that. One of the reasons why the South Carolina primary is so important is that it's the first time where the candidates have to deal with the Black vote in a significant block, right? And so they have to move out of this sort of um, universal narrative that they are able to usually play at that point in the primary when they go through New Hampshire and et cetera. And by the time they get to South Carolina is when they have to start talking about particularities. It's when you have to say, you know, you can't keep saying the story of well, the economy is going great. When you get to South Carolina, no, you've got to face the reality that the economy isn't going great for everyone. And so now you have to start talking about race and class and gender and ability, and you have to do it with a uh, voting block that is very aware of their material conditions. And so that's why the South Carolina primary is uh, so important and why it is so vexing for political candidates, right? Because a lot of their political magic making starts to fall apart when they have to consider Black women voters, Black voters, significant Southern blocks of voters. It gets a lot more complicated than to character the sort of us against them narrative once you get to the South. But if you can come through the South, here's the thing. If you can convince Black voters in the South, particularly Black women voters in the South, 
of the viability of your policy positions, your policy positions are better. Because actually, once you leave South Carolina and you start talking to and pivoting to the rest of the country, you are dealing with multiracial, multi-class coalition that is the United States voter. Um, And so going through South Carolina is, I think, a real important test. And I think we tend to, again, be, I think, a little condescending about the South Carolina primary, this idea that Black people vote in lockstep. And so as long as you go and you do the performance of going to the Black church and, you know, say the right song and dance and kiss the ring, you can kind of, you know, the Democrats in particular can just kind of, you know, write off South Carolina. And I don't actually think that's true. Anybody who's ever been on the ground for South Carolina politics would tell you it is a dogfight from local all the way up (laughs) the ticket. The voters are demanding as they should be. The local structure there is very aware of the place that they hold in the primary structure and how important that is. And I think one of the problems that we have with South Carolina is that we just don't like who has that power at that point in the process, right? We don't like that we have this sort of multiracial power block there in South Carolina where you have to do serious politicking and they can hold you accountable for it. We owe that to a pretty sophisticated South Carolina electorate of which a significant proportion of them are Black voters. You are making such a good point about, I mean, just the idea of of the stress test that starts in South Carolina and really continues through the South. Uh, the idea that we shift from a conversation about electability that really is about the electorate. Yes, I love that. That's exactly right. Yeah, whether the electorate thinks that, that you are electable uh, as opposed to you thinking you're defining elect- your electability to the electorate. So you do such a good job of, of kind of framing the power of Black women. And, and I appreciate that because I'm just really kind of over everybody asking, again, what are Black women going to do in this election? Because I do think one of the most pertinent questions of this election cycle, given everything that we know, is what are white women going to do yes. this cycle? Yeah. How are they going to vote yeah. uh, this year? And and And—, and Southern white women in particular, just because of what we know about the post-Dobbs reality of it all, right? Everything that's happened uh, in terms of bodily autonomy. Why is this not a question more people are asking? What about white women? Yeah, I think the cynical answer is we already know. We already know what they're going to do, right? In the way that we already kind of know what Black women voters are going to do, but we don't like what they do, right? We know what white women voters are going to do, and we've accepted it. And I think that says more about the media class than it says about the perhaps the voters themselves. But we just accept that white women voters are going to fall along partisan lines in a way that for many of them will contradict their own economic um, and democratic sovereignty and agency. And I think we know that. It feels like a taken-for-granted story, and in our media environment, we don't like straightforward stories. I think we especially don't like straightforward stories that appear to blame women for, like, patriarchal decision-making, right, patriarchal influences. But the thing is, when you talk about structure, patriarchal problems is a structural thing that both men and women perpetuate. And so it isn't to blame women for the bad decisions that men make. It is to say men get away with making bad decisions in part because some women benefit from those bad decisions. 
Um, and we know that we're taking for granted. And then you have to look at, again, the composition of the media class. And it would be like saying, you know, asking people to write about themselves and to write about their mothers. And we saw this during the Trump presidency around issues of class, for example, and political partisanship. People really struggled with, for many of them, the first time thinking of themselves as having a political stake in their reporting. And so I think it is easier when you think about the composition of the media class for them to point out the limitations of what Black women voters do, because they don't feel like that is a political position. They think it feels objective because it isn't their mother. It isn't their sister. It's not them. It's not, right? It doesn't feel like a reflection on them. And so it gets this sort of veneer of objectivity. Um, when it's aimed at Black women. But I think that's why you see such a different level of analysis when Black women political analysts are at the table. You know, I pay attention to sometimes, pay attention to some of the Sunday news shows and the different kind of takeaway you get about exactly that question based on the composition of who's around that table is always stunning to me, right? And you can really see the differences there when people give Black women the same sort of grace that is extended to white women voters to say, well, you know, listen, there's a reason to vote your economic interest. And there is a reason to consider um, your relationship to racial inequality at uh, a local level. And we may not necessarily always like what that leads to, but it's perfectly reasonable and rational given the political incentives. When that is extended to Black women, it's always shocking how much clearer the analysis is. And it's also shocking for how it is not the norm. Yeah, more grace for us and more scrutiny for them. Yes, I think that's only fair. Yeah, I I agree. So can we talk about TikTok? (laughs) We can talk about TikTok. Because look, especially in this like digital society, you've got these social media platforms that are playing really a central role in shaping public discourse, you and your TikTok included. Uh, So how do you think about how TikTok has changed how conversation happens? And and really, do you think that TikTok has, has really kind of forced people to take Black women, Black women voters more seriously? Does, does TikTok force us to kind of consider Black women more Yes. And I mean, you know, it's unsettled whether that's necessarily positive or negative. But one thing that does seem to be clear is that when you are dealing in digital medias, you are dealing with Black women's cultural production, right? It's one of the reasons I think that we have sort of a political backlash against taking those media seriously. It is because we may not be the statistical majority, but when it comes to like cultural power, social media platforms owe usually their entire reason for existing to Black women's cultures and to queer youth cultures, period. So yeah, when you talk about something like TikTok, which is this really interesting iteration of social media, you know, my colleagues, I work at a center actually in the university where we study technology and public life and politics. And so this is an interesting year for us because it's going to be the year of the TikTok platform and TikTok political discourse, which I think is really scary for those of us who have been doing this kind of work for a little while because we owned Twitter, right? And we understood Twitter's intervention in the political discourse. We don't know yet what TikTok's intervention is. I can tell you that we're starting to get a taste of it. The extent to which political influencers on TikTok are shaping a counter-narrative in the media 
about everything from whether or not we are in a recession, despite the macroeconomic data. You know, it is TikTok political influencers who said, hey, no, there's still people out here struggling and you can't say that the economy has recovered when food is still high or when housing costs are still high. We're seeing it around the conflict in Israel and Gaza. Political influencers have completely interjected a counterframe to, I think, the dominant media narrative about that conflict. And it has caught, by the way, I think, elected politicians by surprise. Um, and so the speed with which that can happen, the counterframing that can happen, driven so much by Black women's, not just discourse on there as influencers, but by what Black women make meaningful as the stakes of the debate. So the Black women on TikTok may not always benefit from being the biggest influencers. And there are questions about whether that's the algorithm, whether that's about racial and gendered biases among the people who watch the TikToks and they don't like it as much when it's Black uh, women influencers. But despite that, what Black women decide is important to talk about shapes what the other influencers talk about. And that is a really, really big deal. So one of the things I'm paying attention to is that the primaries, I will be interested to see how the coverage in uh, mainstream traditional media differs from the coverage on TikTok and how much that influences, especially the youth vote, where we now know among uh, young voters, they get the majority of their political news from social media platforms and trust them more trust those platforms more, trust those political influences more than they do mainstream journalists. And that's a challenge of not just for politicians, but by those of us who think we can kind of control the media narrative. No, that's such a good point. And also just for journalists, you know, not not being so arrogant as to think that, that there's not something that we can learn from what is happening on TikTok. I mean, there are storylines that are unfolding on TikTok that we could pay attention to. And there is, frankly, just this the small d democratization of our, our politics that is happening, it feels like, on TikTok each and every day. So I, I don't know, Tressa, you may have convinced me to go from lurker to participant. Oh, I wouldn't go that far because I do think <laughs> it is the wild, wild west on there. I will tell you, I don't know. I will say I, I <laughs> it is not for the weak, okay? Good to know. That is definitely the case. I do think it is worth watching, however. I do. I say to my colleagues and my peers, I think it is worth watching, just like you maybe sometimes turn on the news network that isn't your favorite because you kind of need to know what's going on over there. I think TikTok has matured to that point where you do need, if you're going to consider yourself an informed person, having some awareness of what the top line stories, as you said, those narratives that are being written, what those are, I think it's going to be important to how this election is covered. Well, you know, I always listen to you, Tressie, and I will certainly uh, listen to you on that note. Oh my gosh, this has been so fun. I, as usual, have, have enjoyed talking all things Southern with you and am just really happy that we get to kind of share the, <laughs> the the text thread with our amendment audience. So thank you, thank you so much for hanging out with us here. And uh, let's stay in touch as we continue to watch what happens in 2024 and see what the South has to say about this country. Absolutely. It is always my pleasure. And I think there's going to be a lot to say. So we should probably, yeah, keep that text thread going. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So now I want to introduce you guys to a part of the program called The Asterisk. 
Uh, if you're new to the 19th, you may have seen our logo. We are named for the 19th Amendment, but there is an asterisk at the end of our logo, and that asterisk is in recognition of the Black women who were frankly thrown under the bus when the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920, and white women literally stepped over us to get their access to the franchise. So uh, the asterisk denotes that omission, but it is also kind of a North Star for us to think about who remains unseen and unheard in our democracy, the questions that we still are not asking, the things that we still are not thinking about. It's kind of our shorthand for uh, trying to capture all those things so that we are leaving behind a more honest and accurate record of, of who and where we are as a country. So on the amendment, we're going to use this time to talk about something that I'm thinking about that has been left out in our conversation uh, from the previous week. That could be stories that are lacking a lens on race or gender, and there are many. It could be an undercover story because Lord knows there are enough of those. And then maybe stuff that you've seen even in my social media that, that I want to kind of point out and amplify. So for this week's asterisk, I think what I want to get into uh, is the Black women who are attempting to hold former President Donald Trump accountable and the headlines that they were and were not making uh, last week. So you had former President Trump back in a courtroom in New York where he was facing uh, charges of fraud brought by Attorney General Tish James. And then down in Georgia, you had a hearing related to the election interference uh, case that was brought by Fonnie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, who is prosecuting Trump and a variety of, of people who are accused of, of helping him try to pull off a scheme to, to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And so as part of that case, the attorneys for one of the defendants in the Georgia case uh, accused Fonnie Willis of uh, an improper relationship with the special prosecutor in that case, saying that she financially benefited uh, from appointing this prosecutor who she had a romantic relationship with. Uh, so while both of these, you know, kind of legal proceedings were going on in, in these two uh, different cases in, in these two different states, uh, there was one that got a lot of attention, and there was one that, frankly, I felt like barely got any attention. For those of you who were following along, I'm sure you saw on social media kind of the play-by-play of, of uh, Fonnie Willis's explosive testimony in uh, a Georgia courtroom as she attempted to uh, clear her name. Uh, in the same week, you had, uh, in the New York case, a verdict for hundreds of millions of dollars against former President Trump in a case brought by Tish James uh, that, you know, was effective in, in holding uh, the former president accountable that that really hardly got any coverage and and certainly was not nearly as as salacious or filled with uh, kind of bombshell quotes or headlines, uh, but but was nonetheless pretty consequential in terms of of the legal consequences and ramifications for for the former president. Uh, and yet, it seemed like the media was much more interested in kind of. Uh, this explosive testimony uh, from Bonnie Willis about her personal life, uh, even as she is trying to kind of prosecute uh, this case, uh, than they were about uh, recognizing that this uh, Black woman prosecutor in New York had actually uh, been successful at holding the former president accountable. Even thinking about, uh, you know, the Trump civil trial in New York with E. Jean Carroll you know, trying to hold Trump accountable uh, for sexually assaulting her. Uh, and, and he was found civilly liable for that. But there, there was a lot of praise for E. Jean Carroll, and, and rightly so, as, as, you know, kind of a brave 
uh, person who was a, a survivor, you know, she was she was recognized for that. Her her attorney, uh, Robbie Kaplan, a woman, was rec- recognized for her brilliant kind of legal strategy that ultimately was able to um, hold Trump Trump accountable. Tish James is not really being discussed in the same way, and and at least at this point, uh, there there's a lot of a lot more focus on Fonnie Willis's personal life than than her um, professional acumen. I mean, even bringing a, a RICO case and and getting uh, the plea deals that she's already gotten and 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 um, seeing the case that she put together that that got a grand jury to uh, at least think that, that this is a case that should go to trial. I mean, these are uh, professional accomplishments that that I, I don't think are getting attention to the same degree <laughs> as, as as we gave to uh, kind of the more sordid details of, of her personal life that really, you know, are going to have more bearing in, in the court of public opinion than they will in an actual courtroom. You had Fonnie Willis even saying in her own words, uh, you know, telling one of the defense attorneys at one point, you think I'm on trial here. I'm not the one that's on trial. These defendants are on trial for attempting to steal the 2020 election. And, and, and that uh, really kind of refocusing the hearing to to what this entire case is really about. But I think it also relates to, uh, you know, the case that, that Tish James brought, uh, you know, despite whatever attacks the former president attempted to, to kind of lob against her, uh, particularly personalized attacks on her as a black woman, attempting to say that these allegations uh, against him uh, made him the victim of racism over and over again. I just wonder if there's not a way to cover both, you know, Fonnie Willis and Tish James and and their prosecution of the former president in a way that uh, gives us a glimpse into who they are as as people, but also who they are as prosecutors and 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 their leadership as these black women in really these these pretty rare uh, in history, potentially history making roles. So that's my asterisk. Uh, Tish James and Fonnie Willis both uh, very much making black history this month. Thank you for listening. For the 19th News and Wonder Media Network, I'm Erin Haynes. Talk to you again next week. The Amendment is a co-production of the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. It is executive produced by Jenny Kaplan, Terry Rupar, and Faith Smith. Our head of development is Emily Rutter. Julia B. Chan is the 19th's editor-in-chief. The Amendment is edited by Jenny Kaplan, Grace Lynch, and Emily Rutter and was produced by Adesua Agbanau, Grace Lynch, Brittany Martinez, and Taylor Williamson, with production assistance from Lucy Jones, artwork by Aria Goodman. Our theme music was composed by Jay Lynn. I love my theme music. Hi, I'm Amari Jones. I'm sure you hear about trans people all the time in the news, But I wonder, how often are you getting trans perspectives about the world in your news diet? Our voices aren't exactly front and center. But I believe that telling trans stories saves trans lives and helps build a world where each of us is truly free. That's why I host the Translash podcast. My show is a place for us to come together, to dive deep on the issues impacting us, and to celebrate the joy and rich culture that our community creates every day. So if you're a trans person and want a show made for you or an ally who wants to learn more and broaden your horizons, especially now, you should subscribe and listen to the Translash podcast. 
You can hear a new episode every other Thursday. Subscribe to the Translash Podcast wherever you're listening right now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.